Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> Will be. It's the Paul Lynn Halloween Special, starring Paul Lynn, with Paul's special guests, Tim Conway, Roz, Pinky Tuscadero Kelly, Margaret Hamilton, Billy Hayes, Billy Barty, special guest star, Florence Henderson, a special appearance by Betty White, and a rock and roll explosion, Kiss. And now, the Paul Lynn Halloween Special. Lock Culture is brought to you by Harry's Shave Drugstore Blades. Are too expensive? Switch to Harry's for a great shave at a great price. And by Casper Mattresses for a great mattress at a fraction of the price. Visit casper.com slash glop, G-L-O-P, and order today. And by the great courses. Order any of four business and presentation courses for just $9.95. More about these offers Later in the show, this is Glob Culture. I am John Pudhoritz in New York, also in New York, Rob Long. Hi, Rob. John, how are you? I am pretty well. Should, and I, just say, in- should I say, hey, how come you get to interrupt everybody? Like, cat, no, like <laughs> Yeah, let, uh, let, uh, let Jeb speak. Yeah. Let, uh, let, let Jonah Goldberg in Washington, D.C. speak. Jonah, speak. Speak, Jonah. Jonah, where are you right now? So let's get a little verite here. I am uh, in a little uh, cubby back office at Fox News in D.C. It is the office that Charles Krauthammer often uses to prepare before he goes on special report. So I am hoping some of the awesomeness rubs off on me. I, what what does prepare mean? I wonder for Charles Krauthammer. He he. Uh, I think he picks, uh, look up, that smile up, off his face. I think he looks up baseball scores in here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> as long as we're clear. Um, so of course uh, the joke that we were opening with uh, refers to the Republican debate uh, or the two debates that aired on the Fox Business Channel, which was last night, as we're talking to you now. Um, and of course uh, there were these two. Uh, uh, classic now classic Trumpian moments. One in which uh, Trump uh, interjected at some point that Carly Fiorina was talking too much for a nice lady. Uh, nice ladies wouldn't uh, interrupt the way she does, and what a face and all that. Not that he said that. And then at some point, because Jeb Bush found it impossible to get a word in when John Kasich was on a bipolar tear. Uh, Trump said, let Jeb speak, which was as, I would say, as unmanning a thing as I think I've ever seen <laughs> in, in American politics, sort of like, no, look, look, you know, the, let, let the boy in the third row, yeah. you know, whose hand is up, but, you know, no one will pay, let him say something. Let him say, come on, come on, Kevin, it's okay. You can yeah, he, he might have still been saying, bring your little shoeshine box over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody gets a trophy tonight. Uh, well, but so, so wait, so Jonah, you're in D.C., so can you give us the D.C., what's the morning line on this, this debate? Uh, that, because about three minutes after, uh, after the debate started, 
uh, I was checking Twitter, and people were already declaring winners and losers. Big winner of the debate, big loser of the debate. I mean, really, it was people weren't even. I don't think all the candidates had been introduced yet uh, before people were declaring the winner and the loser. So I'm asking you now that it's over, winners and losers. Well, you know, what's, the, what's the morning line? I mean, besides if your, you, if, you, yeah. if you really want the morning line, you know, uh, fortunately, I slipped a Ben Franklin to my shoeshine guy this morning. Oh. And he gave it to me. <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I think the only thing, I mean, I, I've been in the, I was in the green room till 1230 last night here. I didn't see Putin, but um, I saw all the usual suspects, Tucker and Joe Trippy yeah. and all those kinds of guys and all of the chatter there last night. And again, this morning when I saw most of these guys again, is that the only undisputed loser, there are other people who have pet theories about, whether Jeb Herter helped himself, whether Trump Herter helped himself, but there's debate about that. The only thing everyone can agree on was that John Kasich blew it. Yeah. That John Kasich came across, as I, as I said last night, you know, he came across as like the drunk uncle. Everyone is sort of pissed off because he accepted the invitation to come to Thanksgiving dinner. Um, <laughs> he was, he was condescending. He was crude. He he managed to come across as more of an arrogant jerk than Donald Trump. And that yeah. tells you something, one, about how much Donald Trump has grown, but also, two, <laughs> about what a, what a problem John Kasich has. And so I think he fatally wounded himself last night. Um, beyond that, I think – Wait, does, he fatally – were you – were you hopeful that John Kasich was going to catch fire? There was going to be Kasich momentum sweeping, the, or or we were we were all just waiting for 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 something to happen to end the Kasich campaign, right? I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I, I was I was hoping that the farmer was going to come around the barn and and <laughs> take him out a long time ago. But yeah, I think he did it to himself. I think you know he's like trigger chewing on the end of a shotgun, and um, so I think that he he really hurt himself and. Other than that, you know, I, I agree with you. There was a lot of instantaneous winner and loser projection stuff. Uh, my my view is is that it's silly to talk about a single winner because people win their brackets. And I think Cruz won his bracket. I think Rubio won his bracket. I think he got really great luck of the draw in terms of questions. And he was really, really smart and lucky to stay out of the exchange on illegal immigration. Um, and I think – but most people did okay. Uh, it's just that for some people it matters more or matters less. And I think Jeb, I don't, you know, there, you, you do get the sense that the 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 Bushies have been calling a lot of people and working their spin. That you know, that somehow this this was a was a plus night for Jeb. I I, I personally don't really see it. Um, but you know, opinions differ. Well, I, I thought Jeb was not very good, and uh, I said so in the column that appears in the New York Post this morning, and that it's a tragedy for him because uh, he needed to do really well last night to do something yeah. to to get out of the death spiral that his campaign is in. But I was struck by one interesting thing about Kasich having slept on it this morning, that you know his demeanor, his behavior, his interruptions – his um, his sort of ugly spirit or the ugly spirit that he showed uh, marked him as a kind of Cassandra last night because some of the things that he was saying or attempting to say were efforts at bringing the conversation back to a rational frame yeah and be, and his and his behavior yeah. completely 
oversh- overshadowed that. So, for example, he went at Trump on exactly the point that Trump needs to be gone at, which is that you're not deporting 11 million people. This is crazy. Stop telling people that you're going to figure out some way to get 11 million people out of the country. Stop doing that. You're lying to them, and it's nonsense, and it will never happen. That was one. And then the second was when later on when Ted Cruz was saying we need to go on the gold standard and you know someone else was saying we need to audit the Fed and we need to put the Fed under congressional control and he and and Jeb Bush said there'll never be another financial crisis like the one we had and he said you know though he he said it badly again but what he was saying was no president is going to sit in the oval office and not do what he can to make sure that a, right. you know that a bank that can tank the entire world economy doesn't go under. So let's 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 talk Turkey, or as we say, as as my grandmother would have said, let's let's talk Tachlis. This is all nonsense. You're all talking like presidents don't have to make real world decisions and politicians right. don't have to but make so, real world decisions. But, but he was so unpleasant that because, he because he doesn't seem like he's met. It doesn't seem like he's actually arguing with the candidates when he does that. It seems like he's mad at the voters. Yeah, that's the that's the thing about these Republicans that you don't see with Democrats is that Republicans like Kasich, who have this kind of you know they think about who they're going to be in their campaign. Um, they first start by saying, "Well, the first thing we do is tell all the all the Republican primary voters what how, how moronic they are." And that's really how it comes off when they, they really mean – I mean the Huntsman had that same problem, which is it didn't seem like he was really trying to sell anything except a spanking um, and, and a spanking base. But, but Huntsman wasn't angry the way Kasich is. That's Kasich right. comes across like he's at the end of the bar, still wearing his trench coat, fuming about some forgotten grievance 20 years ago. I mean it just he seems like an yeah. angry, dry drunk. Right. But you know, I, again, I think – you know, in the light of day, I, I have to confess that I'm a little distressed by the substance of the debate last night. And it was Kasich was pretty much the only person, except for Rand Paul, who went at who went at say Republican orthodoxy from a you know I would say a left wing isolationist position. That that you know you had this debate in which people are talking about you know mass deportation and they're. T- Talking about you know uh, uh, flat taxes of alternately ten, fifteen, and seventeen percent, one with a VAT, um, you know, a European tax on every purchase, you know, essentially yeah. like a national sales tax. None of these things is ever going to happen. Yeah, or the, but, gold, or the gold standard. Like we should go back on the gold standard, or you well, know, why is that? Why is that? But but Republicans in general favor directionally these changes so wh- wh- right. wh- what on earth would possess a candidate john to go <laughs> on a republican it? primary debate and say and say uh oh yeah we're never gonna get any of this let's talk about the half measures we can, <laughs> we no, can no, have. no 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 I, I i'm not disagreeing with you but i'm saying that there was a there was a quality of a debate between the heritage foundation and the cato institute in 1983 going on in but which could, the question could, was do we want on. a flat tax or should we close every department of the federal government? But I know? like that. That's, that sounds like Reagan. I'm, 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 I, that, that was thrilling. They but, were, they, but, it, was the, it was the right kind of red meat for me, I got to say. Okay, well, 
I don't want to hear somebody say, well, you know, when you get right down to it. You well, know, you don't have to say it that way. No, but like, you don't have to say it that way. Okay. Say it that way. So Rubio, Rubio, for example, was put in a position of defending a tax plan, which is fine. You know, he should. Everybody should have to make a defense of, of, of their plans. But, you know, Rubio is a plan that sort of well, increases the child tax credit as sort of the centerpiece of his plan, as a refundable tax credit, right? So the truth is that of all the plans that were being spelled out there, that is the one that has the most likelihood, should someone get elected president, of actually being enacted into law pretty fast. Whereas going on the gold standard is a project, if we go went back on the, is a project of 10 years of argumentation, pushing and evangelizing and all of that. And it, it makes a little difference because the question is, what are you going to do when you're president? If, if what you say when, that, when you're the gold president is, I'm going to put the country on the gold I, standard, you're paying to well, people. My heart goes pitter-pat when a, when a politician says they want to go back on the gold standard. I like <laughs> it. So I was thrilled. Now, do I think it's really going to happen? I don't know. But I'm, I'm, I'm more inclined to be for the guy who's, who's marching in the direction I want him to rather than the guy who's like, well, I'm, much, I, I'm more inclined in a Republican primary debate to like the guy who says flat tax. The thing's fair. It's ridiculous. We're going to make Rump, this thing simple. Then the guy who's like, well, the refundable tax credit. And then, then I'm like, ah, ah. Rob, can I ask you a question? Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, you know, I don't normally like to break the fourth wall around here and talk about back of the office things at Ricochet, sure. but yeah. just out of curiosity, um, have we picked up Rosalind Capital as a new sponsor for Ricochet? <laughs> well, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I did not know you were a gold bug. It's interesting to, to note that. I mean, in today's uncertain uh, economy, <laughs> with uh, uh, Inflation going crazy, and exp- well, you need to have the security of gold in your portfolio. That's what I've got. I've got gold in my portfolio. Hey, that's real my, gold. Real gold. That's in my wall safe right here in my in my <laughs> fake, uh, you know, uh, Bill Devane den. Although he does live in uh, he does live in India. I do know that. So um, that they could be real. Um, no, I don't know. Look. Uh, but so you're a gold bug? I didn't know that. No, not really, but it's a universal store of value. It's been around for a long time. At least it takes it out of this sort of currency manipulation of uh, these mandarins that uh, that release their the minutes of their debate every quarter. Um, look, me and Jim Grant, maybe we're the only ones. I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself a gold bug. I feel like those are that's a hurtful language. Um, <laughs> and I'm retreating to my safe space. But I, I don't I mean I like that I like the dreaming big philosophy of that. I thought that was good. Wait, did we lose Jonah? No, I'm here. I'm here. I, I went off to go buy gold. <laughs> That's good. I just heard a little <laughs> clink. Um, so I don't know. So I, I, uh, I, I, I respectfully disagree with John Podoritz. Okay, so you, so you are making the argument that the debate should be on first principles, and I'm arguing that what, you know, I, I mean, they can be on anything. It's fine. And as I say, I don't think, I think philosophically, <laughs> no, but no, I think well, they, that sounds I, so I mean, passive aggressive. You can have a debate about anything you want. That's fine. No, what I, <laughs> I'm going to be watching. Can I ask oh, you a question yeah. now? Yeah. I mean, how, how is your point, which I, I take your point, right? But how is your point any different than the sheer mind numbing stupidity of the Democrats you know the the now unstoppable frontrunner Hillary Clinton proclaiming in the last debate what we need is a new new deal right i mean the, talk about things that you're not going to get and talk about things that we were supposed to have gotten from obama uh, we're not going to get a new new deal right we're not going to have the federal government do all the things that hillary clinton wants to talk about but it it is a signal about where she's coming from 
what, what, you know, yeah. where she wants to go. And, you know, when he, I, I agree with you that there, it, things get so nutty and Jesuitical when we argue about these different tax plans, none of which will ever, like any plan, will survive contact with Congress for very long. But it is useful to get the sense of where people are coming down, whether or not they like lower taxes, what, where they want to tax right. income or, or, or labor or spending or whatever. And that's all fine. And, um, you know, so I guess my point is I get your point, but so what? Okay, I would just say this, that you have two aspects of, of presidential leadership and party leadership, right? One is, you know, let's say uh, policy-based or, you know, and then the other is aspirational. So if you're, so on the one hand, if you're Hillary and you say we need a new New Deal, that would be one thing. If you say as president, what I'm going to do is nationalize the auto industry or mm-hmm. I'm going to nationalize the oil fields or, you know, I'm going to... That's so that one one is aspirational, like we need a new social compact in which government and business and everybody work together to do blah, 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 which I guess you could say is we need a 10 percent flat tax based on you know biblical principles. The other is, OK, this is a debate on economic policy that, you know, actual real world economic policy. And we find ourselves at a moment at which. All kinds of economic theories about how the world is going to work no longer seem to be playing out the way people thought and think they they would or have been over the last hundred years. You know, we've been printing we've been printing trillions and trillions of dollars of money, and the inflation rate remains insanely low. Anyway, I'm just saying that you have these two qualities, and I thought this debate, and in fact the undercard debate between Christie and Jindal and Huckabee oh. and uh, who was the fourth? I can't even remember, remember now. <laughs> That's uh, like Santorum, Cruz counting out of the department. Santorum, right, Santorum, um, you know, was actually more, you know, on point, you know, was sort of like, what, what did you do as governor? What did you, you know, what, you know we're, we, the whole point here is we're supposed to go after Hillary Clinton because she's doing this and that. And we need to win. And this turned into a kind of, as I say, this is where you're right, Jonah, Jesuitical debate over which flat tax plan is better than which flat tax plan, as though we are ever going to see a flat tax. So I'm Mm. sad because I think that it doesn't set anything up, doesn't prepare anything for the race against Hillary, yeah, let me but, put it yeah, that way. So, so but like, you know, when Reagan said he was going to close the Department of Education, he didn't do it. But we, but we believe that that was part of his philosophy. I don't know. I, I, I don't. He I, thought I, the he debate, was. He thought the he debate was you're describing is not a debate I would ever want to see. I certainly wouldn't want to see it in the primaries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look, I'm reminded. You know, I use this you can before. mix the two. No, you can't. Why not? Why can't you mix the two? I'm not saying you have to say, yeah, yeah. We're just all we're going to do is make changes no, no, around no, the no. edges. No, you can't. You can't. You, 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 what you want from the candidates is forward-thinking, broad strokes. And you Here's, know what else you want yeah. from candidates? You wait, want wait. Before you do the segue, before you do the segue, uh, okay. uh, but Jonah, what were you going to say? <laughs> well, well, two things. One, I thought you did have both in last night's debate. I thought there was aspirational pie-in-the-sky stuff, and there was actually some nitty-gritty, wonky stuff. And I don't know that we're ever going to get a better mix than that. And then second of all, I, I'm with Rob about, you know, one thing, you know, when you're talking about the Department of Education thing, it reminds me, you know, Bill Buckley had this great line about how he got into this big fight with the libertarians about the idea of privatizing lighthouses. And it turns out that Bill was wrong, that libertarian, that people, there used to actually be private lighthouses. 
Um, but uh, his but his point was that, you know, these are the kind of the debates that keep America free because a country that is earnestly debating whether or not to privatize the lighthouses won't consider socializing medicine. OK, and I, look, that's a brilliant I think yeah, point. And yeah, I think that's exactly that. Yeah. Waiting down rhetorical, you know, benchmarks and goalposts like get rid of the Department of Education. A president who says I want to get rid of the Department of Education is going to be more reluctant to create a new giant stupid bureaucracy than one who says, no, we've got to protect the Department of Education. And voters should hear that. OK. And you know what else voters need to hear? And ricochet, <laughs> and ricochet listeners need to hear. They need to hear about Harry's shave. Yeah, it's true. So, so guys, this may surprise you, but a friend of mine asked me the other day if I was planning to do uh, Movember this year. If you don't know what that is, Movember is the month where guys grow mustaches to raise awareness and money for men's health issues. Who, somebody really asked you that? Someone really asked me that, uh, Rob. They Somebody really did, and uh, I'm still on the fence about it, even though it is November, you know. I don't know why uh, we're talking 10. about November. It's never going to happen. This is but, my but that, <laughs> Rob, that reminds me that whether or not you do I Movember, see. you should check out Harry's, the official razor partner of Movember. So Harry's Shave, as you know, is a system where they send you blades and shaving cream and aftershave if you want it and uh and i use it and it's fantastic you get super sharp blades a close comfortable shave i like the foaming shave gel there's 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 also shaving cream it's rich it smells amazing it hydrates your skin because you know my skin needs a lot of hydration guys hydration that's really yeah. the key word that in november uh I was, that's your that's your mob name it's, yeah. uh, it's Johnny Dryskin Pedoras. <laughs> we need Dryskin right. on this deal. That's, that's right. You're, and you're Rob Movember Long. Um, I was really surprised by how high quality the products are for the price you pay. Started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience. Uh, they give 1% of their sales and 1% of their time back to the communities they serve. They bought a razor factory in Germany, making great razor blades for years. And then they sell the products at factory direct prices, so they only cost a fraction of the big guys. One million have made the switch to Harry's. The website is streamlined, easy to use, takes 30 seconds to place an order with great customer service. The starter set is an amazing deal with my code, which I think is GLOP, G-L-O-P. You can get it for just $10. Shave includes a razor handle, three blade cartridges, and your choice of shaving cream or foaming shave gel. I like the gel, like I said, just like dry skin, pot horrets, and Movember lawn. <laughs> Delivered to your door. Shipping is free. Go to harrys.com right now as a special offer for our fans. Harry will give you $5 off your first order with code GLOP. That's only for our fans. If you don't like this show and you're listening, no, even you can get $5 off. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter the code GLOP, $5. There you have it, harrys.com. And you know who needs to shave more are those protesters in columbia missouri who if you saw the mob scene on monday where they were you know basically trying to rough up a photographer uh you know looked like they could use a shave and a shower and maybe read a book and maybe get the hell back into their dorm rooms and graduate and see what they can do more productively with their lives than create a massive you know have a massive temper tantrum 
for political reasons. That's my view. What's your view? Jonah? Uh, yeah, so I actually have our, my column about it um, is up. I think I've talked about this before on the show. You know, I have this theory that um, part of the problem is, I mean, yeah, political correctness is a problem. Cultural Marxism is a problem. Critical legal, critical racial studies, all that nonsense, there are problems. But they're actually really old problems. We have had that kind of, you know, people have been talking about political correctness for 30 years. And things have gotten worse now. And the question is why? I mean, this stuff was really actually bouncing off of kids in the mid-1990s. It was like getting much better. And now all of a sudden it's worse than it's ever been. And I, I think part of the answer, and that's just part of the answer, is that we as a society now are raising these kids where they never have – large numbers of them, particularly elite kids, um, are raised not to um, – figure out how to deal with interpersonal situations on their own. You know, that's part of the whole point of, you know, all this fretting about helicopter moms. It's part of this reason why we've had the, the, the free range kids movement. These kids never have the opportunity to sort of just work out amongst themselves interpersonal conflicts. That's what you get with, you have free play. Everything is supervised. There's always a third party intercessor, a teacher, a parent, a coach, to step in. And it turns out, you know, that human beings, just like most mammals, are hardwired to learn a lot and to be socialized through play. And we don't let kids play the way we used to. People don't play the pickup games the way they used to, at least not the ones who go to these elite schools. And so you get this problem where, you know, it's just, you imagine what would happen if you have these kids, these delicate flowers who have their lives micromanaged for them. When they get to college, what happens? Well, they... Um, for the first time in their life, they're on their own and they got to deal with authority figures telling them things that they don't want to hear. And so they want to – maybe they'll ask for trigger warnings or they'll have to negotiate sexual relationships in a way that they never had to before. And maybe they want you know, consent decrees and sex contracts and all this kind of nonsense. And I think what we're seeing in a lot of ways on these college campuses is a result of the way we've been raising our kids for a very long time where they are sort of taught from a very early age to have a romantic, and I mean as in the romantic era, view of their own importance in the world, their specialness, their uniqueness, and they consider any infringement or insult to their glorious stature to be this grave and terrifying and outrageous affront. And that's why we get this asininity breaking out all over the place. I totally agree. You know, interesting the movie The Twilight Zone, and and the yeah. woman goes to that little that the house that's controlled by uh, this telepathic child, who's and all the adults are surrounding this child are catering to him and like they'll do whatever he wants because he's so powerful. Um, and and the, the story is that the woman is the first person to sort of like lay down the law, and the, the the boy suddenly realizes and he's mad at his family for letting him get away with all that. And that's really what a college is now. I mean, this is really about power, right? And yeah. these kids want you fired. Who hired you? Scream that girl at the at the master of Silliman College, Yale. Uh, who hired you? Like like, uh, like your alma mater. Like, yeah, exactly. My alma mater. Like you, you like you. You should be fired. She basically said you should be fired. Um, and it really is this. I mean, what's amazing about all of these all of these uh, uh, events is that they, they they entail a certain amount of excuse making for why I didn't do my assignment. 
<laughs> so if like you like at Yale, they're always like, I can't sleep, I can't do any work, I haven't been able to study or read, and it's all of these are excuses these kids are using for failing to deliver the thing that they are apparently paying to deliver. So so Jonah's right, but it's also this, it's it's a it's kind of this um, it, it, traditionally. All of this stuff, student activism, has been energizing to the students. It's been this thing that they we, we can't be stopped. They're arguing in class. They're doing all this. It's you, you, even you think of the uh, the kids in the '60s that sort of it was an intellectual fervor, kind of crazy. But it was you understood that they were students and they were learning something in class and they were being energized by it. Uh, these kids just seem like they're that they're enervated by it. Like you're exhausting me with your patriarchy. I'm wounded and I can't get out of bed and you're depressing me. It's very strange. And I think it is an outcome of an outgrowth of, of what, what, what we're reaping the whirlwind of this really, really lousy child raising, um, uh, uh traditions for the past 10, 15, 20 years. We're getting exactly the kids we thought. I mean, okay. I, I can remember being a kid and just understanding in general that you looked around the neighborhood that there were some houses that had crazy adults who probably would yell at you, and there were some houses you never wanted to go into. The idea of negotiating the world as a child starts very early for some generations, and at a certain point, it stopped. And well, uh, I, that's I think I wanna, that's. I want to make a. I want to make a case that um, uh, while I think that may be true of the people who are sort of the extras in these dramas, that is like the ones who are standing around. You know, filling up the green or are, you know, staying there saying, yeah, that's really sad what happened at Silliman College. I mean, it's really, you know, that, that, that email was real, real, that real, was really, real offensive. Yeah, yeah, and that's really OK. But that is not what's going on, although it may be what's going on at Silliman College at Yale with this, you know, insane, uh, you know, letter and this 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 young woman saying, you know, she doesn't want to talk about free speech. She just wants people to acknowledge her pain. Um <laughs> Um, but you know, at, at, at Missouri, something else is going on and it's, it's Maoism. I mean, I don't know what other word to use as a, as I don't mean that it's political Maoism and, and, you know, it's not, they're not attempting to sort of, you know, send everybody, send a hundred million people to collective farms. What I mean is that it is this kind of, you will kowtow. Yeah. You will, it's the cultural revolution. You will, there is a new power structure according to which our, you know, our accusations, uh, you know, that you, your behavior is unjust. You are a leader, but you will now kowtow to me. You will apologize. You will quit. Uh, we will taunt you as you leave um, on the basis of trumped up evidence. I mean, uh, oddly. No, there's no, evidence. no, but no, no, but I mean, trumped up evidence, like literal trumped up evidence. Sean Davis of the Federalist yesterday spent six or seven hours pretty much proving yeah, you know, with a lot of jokes and a lot of puns that this supposed swastika made out of feces uh, that, you know, made uh, the University of Missouri at Columbia campus an unsafe uh, space uh, is a hoax. There's no evidence of it. No one ever saw it. No one has a picture <laughs> yeah. of it. Well, the thing is, like, there's pictures but of that everything. Is a classic, that is a classic, you know, neo-Stalinist Maoist thing to create. You, 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 you issue a false accusation you then blame author- – since you don't have a criminal, you blame authorities for it, and then you can round up the authorities. Now, I'm not sure I have that much sympathy for – I don't know who this guy 
who was the, you know, president of the University of Missouri System White. I don't know who he is. You know, he seems like he was a computer executive who got the job. For all we know, he's just a crony of Governor Nixon's. And I don't know who the chancellor is who's quitting. It's all, it's likely that one or the other of them is quitting because they looked around and said, get me the hell out of here. This is is a lunatic asylum and I have better things to do with my life. And I, truth is, you know, I'm making $460,000 a year here. I can probably make $500,000 here somewhere else if I just, you know, put <laughs> well, my head down. I can make no, 300 no. and it's worth it. <laughs> right. But I mean, but I mean, so, so in that sense, this is a naked, this is naked, also, also, naked power yes. place for the sake of power. Because what is it, what is it that the people on the Missouri campus want? They want acknowledgement that the school, that this school where there have been two reported incidents of racism on campus, two is a is a you know is a night racist racial nightmare. I mean, so what are they, they? It already has every department that 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 is desired. It already has women's gender studies, gay studies, every conceivable kind of study. So this is something else that's going on, and it's very frightening. And people should be take it very seriously and not to go. Oh, well, like I said, the power- I think. Right. But the power came from not the revolutionaries. The power came from, I mean, just to be Marxist for a minute, came, the power came from the football team. Power came from a revenue generating high uh, uh, organization with an enormous amount of leverage. Um, had it just been a bunch of like, you know, gender studies or uh, uh, majors, uh, none of this would have happened because they wouldn't have had the power. But luckily for them, they got some football players who have enormous leverage, refused to play, which meant was was going to be a big deal, and that's they turned it into a big deal. I mean, I mean, uh, in a way, at least in Missouri, that it feels like, well, all right, you for, you give all the you give the football players that much leverage that how do you know they're not going to use it against you? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to be a I'm not trying to justify it, but it, it is a it is a more interesting case in Missouri because it brings in more more different aspects of national uh, of the national sort of higher education than Yale, where it's just these little idiotic brats screaming. And and you're right. I think there's a huge majority. I mean, to me, the danger here is not the danger, but I think the outcome is there's a small vocal minority of these crackpot kids. Uh, and then there's a small vocal minority of of kids who hate the crackpot kids, and in the middle there are these giant. The most Amer- most American students are the part of that middle who are incredibly cynical. Who are like, okay, what language do you want me to use to get the A? And they look at their professor and they judge the professor by the way she dresses and the kind of shoes she wears and the Volvo she gets into. And they say, I know what she wants to hear from me when I write about uh, Spencer's Fairy Queen or whatever. I'm just going to deliver that. Oh whatever yes, the Spencer's language of, Fairy languages, Queen. They're yeah, not whatever. writing about Spencer's Fairy Queen. They're writing about they're writing about Fifty Shades of Grey. And gendering, representing the Fairy Queen in a you know in no. the, the context 50, of Fifty Shades 50 of Grey. Fifty Shades of Fairy Queen. Of gray. Fifty Shades of Grey. The that the the yeah. communications professor yeah. at Missouri was the one who demanded that somebody beat up the photographer. It's great language, though. Intertextual. Her, her yeah. Of, yeah, her dissertation was on Martha Stewart, and yeah, she yeah. teaches Fifty Shades of Grey. So, I mean, if well, they were yeah. regendering the Fairy Queen, at least somebody would be reading the goddamn Fairy Queen. No, no, <laughs> sending your kids to college to read Fifty Shades of Grey, to read Fifty Shades of Grey, a book that has already sold eighty million copies. This yeah. is so now. So we're, now 
But let's talk about Yale wait, wait, for a no, second. No, no, wait. What were there you are, two, there are two aspects. Wait, 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 wait. wait Joe, what were you going to say? Okay, so first of all, I, I agree with Pod that there's something very deep, deeply pernicious and horrible here. And it, I just keep thinking of um, of the – remember the terrible Kevin Costner movie, The Postman? Oh, sure. Where the head evil general warlord was a Xerox repairman prior to the fall of civilization. And it turned out that he had hidden deep within him this reservoir of skills that made him a great warlord. Um, I look at people like this, this click woman who, you know, got her dissertation in, in 50 shades of gray or whatever, or Martha Stewart. And these are the sort of the, 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 the parasitical kind of creatures, right? The, the remoras that are constantly swimming around college campuses, looking for a mob, the way a remora looks for a shark to stick onto and exploit. And you just look at her in that video and you can see, you know, you can see why, you know, when 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 things go bad in in countries, these otherwise completely normal, you know, so it's the banality of evil. Right. You see these people who recognize, aha, this is my one shot of exercising my will to power. I am going to leech onto these stupid, ignorant, but really, really passionate kids and I'm going to use and I'm going to ride them for all that they're worth. And I think that, you know, so I, I agree entirely with John that, you know, there's there's a sort of a hint of Maoism or Robespierreism and going on in a lot of this stuff. But part of the reason why it's working so much better these days is that we have gotten to a point where you've taught kids that being a victim is empowering. That it's currency. So Right. The culture right. of the realm, it's very Nietzschean, right? It's resentment, resentment, or however you say that, right? Where you take what is strongest about a civilization and you turn it into a weakness. And so, like, being a victim, you know, is, is now considered the pinnacle of our civilization and the person that deserves, that has most power over other people. And, um, and the problem with that is that our society actually doesn't create that many victims, you know, this is an incredibly generous, wonderful, open society. And so people have to start manufacturing narratives about their victimhood. And when you call them on the facts, their response is, I don't want to debate. I want to talk about my pain because, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates's book, you know, this incredibly searing indictment of structural white supremacy in the United States boils down to a couple anecdotes where someone in New York City was rude in an elevator. You know, what I mean? right. that, and right. that is upon which we are supposed to overthrow our entire civilization. I mean, it is insanity, but you can see how it works when you get this generation of kids right. who are told well, also, work yeah, with your but it works. But, but it works. It works because it works. think about think about the think about the 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 two you know housemasters or whatever the hell they're called. At Silliman College, the 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 Christakis couple, Nicholas and Erica, right? So, so I don't care what they're called. They're called idiots, is what they're called. Anyway, so what happened was a lot of rage in what you just said. No, so 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 you had a college at University of Chicago, John. I happen to know for a fact you had a residential college named named in practicality in the University of Chicago style the residential college. No, it was a dorm. No, it was a dorm. It was called it was called Burton Judson, and I was in a house called Mead House, 
yeah. and there was a guy sitting there, you know, as the resident master because he got a free apartment, and you go up there and like look look at magazines, and I think uh, he's so drab. A stash of so much privilege here. I can't believe. So drab. Anyway, my point is, so kids at Silliman College are are upset because the Yale because the Yale administration sends out an email saying, make sure you you wear culturally appropriate and sensitive Halloween costumes on campus. So kids go to her and she hears what they're saying and she writes an email saying. This is ridiculous. It's Halloween. Do whatever you want, right? And that—that's when. Well, but Eve, she didn't even say that. I mean, that—that's what she should have said in a in a in a, in a real world. But in in even within the context of an of, of a, a modern American university, her email was couched in the language of psychology. She's a child psychologist. It was couched in the language right. of, of psychology. It was actually probably the most. I mean, if you if, if anyone read it sort of from a conservative perspective, you think. Yeah. Uh, who is this woman? She's coddling these kids. But in fact, in today's yeah. world, her coddling email came off as remarkably offensive and insensitive. Right. That, but her then, email okay. uh, 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 actually classifies as tough love. <laughs> okay, but then, then what happened this week? Her husband threw her under the bus. Her husband stood in front of the, ki- the kids at, at, at Silliman College and did the Maoist kowtow. I'm so sorry. I hurt your feelings. Well, you hurt your feelings. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please, I beg of you, leave us alone. I'll say whatever you need me to say. Give me a document true. to that sign and I'll true. sign it. That's what that's, he said. No, that is not true. He said, you can see it on the video. He said, I'm sorry that you are offended. But, and it was all, but free speech and free debate is important. He was what, what if you watch that video when the girl is screaming at him, not he is that saying, video. I'm talking about still, what he said on Monday. I'm talking about what he said four well, days I mean, later when uh, he abjectly, abjectly apologized and basically said he was sorry that he heard that his wife hurt their feelings. <laughs> and it is so not, sad. You take this from our free apartment. Leave, me, leave me alone. Leave me. I'll say whatever you want. I'm saying what you need. I, 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 take, yeah. I, 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 you know, take my wife, you know, I'll, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, I mean, it is unbelievable. I mean, it is, it, this, this well, goes but, beyond yeah. spinelessness. He's basically, like I say, he's basically saying it like, uh, like in, like in the twilight zone, like there's a moment in that fantastic twilight zone thing where at some point the family you know, is standing there and the kid says, who did this? And the guy who was supposedly his father points at the one who's supposedly his mother and says, she did it. She, yeah. she did it. <laughs> like, you know, punish her, not me. Right. You know, I mean, you know, that that's why I, it's, 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 it's a despairing moment. I don't know how else to look at it. I, you know, it's funny. It's ridiculous. We're all making fun of it, and you know, yes, we're raising our children to be fragile flowers, and they all think they should be victims. But, but okay, aren't you nostalgic, at least historically, partly historically, for this? In the '60s, those kids who had this giant, you know, crackpot beef, although a legitimate argument about the draft, right? But those kids were energized by this. Now, I'm not saying the outcome was great, but at least they were building bombs and you know, at least they were doing <laughs> shit 
stuff. Right? No, some some were wait, no wait, let me wait, let me some finish. were just smoking wait, dope on the quad. That's fine too. That's fine too. But at least the radicals were they were out there agitating and and occupying stuff and 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 printing weird manifestos and it seemed like the it seemed like this this, this all this energy was being unleashed on college campuses, maybe for ill, but it was still it was still energy. These kids are like crying on the quad they're sobbing and holding each other like they're wounded birds it's so weird it's so weird well so i have a slightly different take on this because like you're talking about the letter being sort of like touchy-feely gobbledygook and all that what 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 i think is sort of fascinating right is that this is this is the 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 reaping this is sowing what you've reaped or reaping what you've sown um for the hippies right and for the for for an entire two generations of liberals because there was a time when that reaction of, hey, let these kids have their fun, let them be a little daring, that's what made you cool, right? That's, that's right. what made you a cool administrator. It was like, oh, they let us wear whatever. You know, I was a pregnant nun. I did this. I was that. You know, I have a buddy who dressed up for Halloween at Middlebury. He and two other guys got a bunch of oars and, uh, and swimming outfits and dressed as Roe v. Wade. Um, and... Um, that was the kind of thing that made you cool. And the problem is, is the, this generation of kids, it doesn't seem like it to us because we're so caught up in our normal, in our, in our categories. But this generation, these are the prudes. These are the fuss budgets. These are the guys let, that Robin Williams replaces in Dead Poet Society who don't like right. risque clothes and don't like edgy things and want to be sort of cocooned away and what's fascinating to me about it is that this is you know the the people who have this idea of what makes them cool are being destroyed by these kids who you know absent you know all sorts of ideological markers are actually kind of reactionary conservative prissy kids who have you know subscribed to essentially you know medieval notions of sumptuary laws you know (laughs) um it's kind of fascinating Right. Or to or to put it or to put it in uh, in in more uh, recent pop culture terms, Lucy Van Pelt is running. Yeah, the universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's weird here? Okay, so if you're 20 years old today, so you're a college sophomore or junior today, you were born in 1995 or 1996, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's. I mean, first of all, I mean, for anybody uh, sort of my age and, and John, your age, and Joni, you're younger, but the idea that there was a child born. In 1996, who is now in college, is shocking and like kind of <laughs> makes me want to jump out of a bridge or something. Mm-hmm. But all right, so you were born in 1995. So just say your parents were 30 when they had you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're my age now. They were born in 1965. So these are not your parents weren't even the children of the 60s. They weren't children of hippies. They were children of uh, people who were born in 1935 or 45. Right? They were born. Um, from people for uh, World War II, but baby boomers, right? Or not even baby boomers, before baby boomers. Right. So you're in this weird generation where you've missed – your parents are not radical hippies. They're probably not even liberal. They're not necessarily even liberals, but you are have been steeped in this weird brew and they've been steeped in this weird child-rearing brew. That it's, I guess my point is it's only going to get worse. Right, and what's more, what's more, they didn't even get to participate in the anti-war – movement against the Iraq war because they were too young. It's like, wow, right. you mean there were 200,000 right. people 
protesting the Iraq War in 2003. Oh, my life is so. I was in middle school. Yeah, my life is so boring. You know, we in the old days they used to be able to protest the Iraq War. But you know what? Some of these kids are going to need Rob and Jonah. <laughs> they're going to need something. You know what they're going to yeah, need? Uh, they're going to need a product. I, they're going to need a product called product. The Great Courses. Yeah. Okay? Now, That's true. for these. They're not getting them there. Are, yeah, right. They're not getting them there. <laughs> and for those of us and our listeners, we actually continue to have a love of learning and it doesn't stop after we've finished school where we might have actually learned something unlike some people so that's why we are big fans of the great courses engaging audio and video lectures from top professors and experts in their fields we recommend that you watch the great courses collection of lecture series geared towards professionals including scientific secrets for a powerful memory how conversation works the art of public speaking Influence Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. These courses offer valuable tools and insights to help strengthen presentation skills, become a better negotiator, sharpen our memory. Maybe you could learn how to argue with a 19-year-old. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they're celebrating their 25th anniversary. They have lecture series over 500 subjects, including history, science, art, music, and more, available in DVDs, streaming, CDs, digital downloads, or with the Great Courses apps on mobile devices for a limited time the great courses has a special offer for glob culture listeners order any of these four business and presentation courses for just nine dollars and 95 cents this special price of nine dollars and 95 cents is only available for a limited time order today go to the great courses.com slash glop that's the great courses.com slash glop so uh it is now, now November, what? what is it? It's, it's November 11th as we speak. And, uh, and the Iowa caucuses are now two and a half months away. Now, remember, by the way, in 2012, the Iowa caucuses were at the very beginning of January. Now they're at the end of January, which, of course, means that the calendar, everybody has this kind of sense that we're coming really close. We're getting really close to voting. But in fact, it's not as close as it feels, and the race is very, very unsettled. 75% of people in the Republican primary say they could vote for somebody else after they pick the person that they say they want. And we've now seen these three debates, and there are going to be a couple more. And I'm wondering what you guys, let's say Jonah, yeah. if, you, if you were looking at, let's say guys who seem to have the most room for growth, right? Uh, or, you know, for powerful growth, Rubio and, and Cruz. Let's say you take Ted Cruz, supposedly one of the world's great, officially one of the world's great debaters. Um, what advice would you give him as we move forward in these and other settings to enhance his strengths and to play down his weaknesses? Huh. Well... I'm not sure. I think that one of the things he needs to do, you know, I think one of his big problems coming up is he is working from this theory, at least this is what everyone says, that he is waiting to scoop up the Ben Carson and really Donald Trump supporters when they inevitably fail. First of all, this, of course, begs the question because they may not fail. And 
uh, or they may not fade. And you actually may need to take them on and try and take them out rather than just hope for the gods to provide. But let's say that they do. The problem for Ted Cruz is that um, even though ideologically he is really simpatico with the Trump supporters and is very well positioned on the issues and on his record to be the outsider guy who takes on the Washington cartel, whether you think that's a entirely vapid or good or great argument, that's the, the different question. Um, the problem is, is that a big chunk of the people who love Ted Cruz, I mean, who love uh, Donald Trump and, and, and Carson, they love him for his, the, for their personality. And Ted Cruz does not have, he has an anti-politician ideology, but he has a politician's demeanor like nobody's business. He comes across as a guy who calculates, who triangulates, who, who, who you know, positions himself based upon some sort of political calculation and does not seem nearly as much of the populist in terms of his personality as he does in terms of his positions. And so my advice to him is start seeming like a more authentic, real guy now. Um, because when those supporters break loose, they're going to break loose really fast and they're going to make their decision in a moment and it's too late to do it then. And walking around with a, you know, a, a shotgun over your shoulder while bird hunting, but still sounding like you're in a suit, um, isn't going to do it. Interesting. I mean, I, 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 I feel like the problem for Cruz is that this theory about the Trump and Carson voters neglects the fact that the Trump and Carson voters are two entirely different sets of people. People seem to think that they are the same. I agree. They, I agree. And they are, they are not the same. Trump is the angry, is the, is the, is the personification of the angry white voter that we've been hearing about really for 25 years and who manifested himself most importantly and election changingly in the candidacy of Ross Perot in 1992, but supposedly also had a very strong place in the Republican revolution of 1994. But he is sort of like the apotheosis of this. And Carson is, is a candidate for evangelical Christians and people in the Republican Party who are as much present in the Republican Party, Egyptologists, as much present in the Republican Party as in the Democratic Party, who want to cast a vote that makes them feel good and casting a vote for an extraordinarily accomplished black surgeon makes them feel good the way, or thinking about it, makes them feel good the way casting a vote for Barack Obama made certain Democrats feel good in 2008. So, so your point is that, that Cruz is, is, is mis, uh, misreading the support for Carson and Trump, and he thinks he's going to scoop it up, and they're two different, they're just two different, right, this point? point. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I actually don't think there's any way to make sense of... Um, or to tease out who those people are right now, uh, because they seem to go, they seem to comfortably have gone from Trump to Carson, um, uh, you know, not that not that long ago. So uh, I, I'm not I'm not really sure that's the case. I mean, I think look, the Cruz's problem is what, as Jonas says, is what it's always been, what it was even when he was first elected, which is that he seems canned, 
He seems a little oily. He doesn't seem sincere. And that has been a rap on Cruz since before he ran for president. That you know, read Andy Ferguson's piece about Cruz in the Weekly Standard. This is from two, almost, maybe three years ago, and you're seeing the same thing come up and the same problem. And it's one of those things where, where if it's still a problem, and the problem is that fundamental, which is like be more real, be more trustworthy. And there are people going saying, "I just don't like the guy. I don't. I, I, he doesn't seem real to me." That gets really. It's a very, very hard thing to undo especially with a candidate who doesn't seem to be doing anything to undo it. And probably it's because it's a hard thing to to sit down and face and a hard thing to explain to the candidate. Here's the problem. People think you're a greaseball. They think that you're just this kind of slithery guy who says whatever he wants. You know, that's a hard thing to say. You think he seems inauthentic? I don't think inauthenticity is the problem. I think that he espouses an approach and an ideology that are that are superficially attractive to a lot of Republican voters. It's, you know, fight, well, oppose, block, you know, and, uh, and, and, and return to principles, but that there is something about his mien and his demeanor that to people who are not, who are not, don't believe that everything is a, you know, or find that a little off-putting, he, and that's more people than the, they must fight and we've got to, uh, you know, make a revolution, that he offers them nothing. But he offers them nothing. But but I think it's the same thing. The problem is that he doesn't, people, people who, uh, um, are would, would are in favor of his conservative principles. I mean, uh, everybody wants to stop Obamacare. Everybody, no, nobody wants to st- to continue adding to the to the national debt. They find his positions to be too canned and too inauthentic. Not that he doesn't really believe them, but that he is out. That that is, it's too nakedly for Ted Cruz. Um, and that's always been the rap on him. I mean, that was the rap on him in Texas. This is not; these are not new things that have emerged. These are things that these are the flaws of his either style or person or character or the way he is or the way he sounds that have been trailing him throughout his political career. It's yeah, one I, thing I, to I, win I, that in Texas; it's a hard thing to do it in, in, a, in a general. I think we're ta- all talking. I think we're all talking past each other because I think the way we for a lot especially post romney right the way we talk about these things is about authenticity and i agree with you that authenticity is not really the issue with cruz i you know i mean i, I can't tell you how many conversations i've had with ted cruz where he has said to me jonah let me tell you something as if he's going to confide some real juicy insight and personal thing and then tells me exactly something i've heard him say on c span in front of an audience of 10,000 people. And um, that's sort of the rap against him, is he, that he's, he's just incredibly buttoned up and disciplined and strategic. And for some people, that seems like inauthenticity. Some people, it seems like mercenary or just cold fish. And whatever it is, my only point is, is that he has got to figure out a way to boost his personality appeal to people who don't already like him now. Because... I don't know for a fact that the Trump supporters and the Carson supporters, who I agree with John, are very different people. I just don't think that they all go automatically to Cruz because they agree with his position papers. They're looking for someone to be in love with. Right. And, you know, and you know Eric Erickson. Cruz has got to figure out how to seem yeah. lovable. So Eric Erickson, who ran Red State as a, you know, as a radio talk show host in, in Georgia and, you know, seems and was a, one of the sort of leaders of the – Tea Party fight, fight, fight crew 
has been saying now for a week or a week and a half that the that the serious organizational thing to watch is that Rubio is making a real move on evangelicals, that he's hired people in his organization, that he is, you know, moving toward them and trying to figure out a message for them. And I think that that this is an interesting thing because his manner and demeanor, Rubio's, is closer to Carson's than than Carson, who is clearly, I think, on on the way to winning Iowa unless if something doesn't stop him. I mean, you know, he's the perfect candidate to win the Iowa caucuses. But if you had to pick a person on the stage who had this kind of like somewhat softer, somewhat, you know, more pleasant, more, you know, civilized manner um, that that speaks to sort of like good, you know, comportment and civilized behavior and friendliness in church and all of that. Rubio, as a as a as a matter of external performance, is far closer to that. Yeah, he's a nice young man. Nice right. young. Nice. But look, Republican Light. primary voters, yeah. Republican primary voters get go a little crazy, uh, and then they settle traditionally anyway, and then they settle down and they get really serious. Right. And they and they and they and they start to make tactical and. Um, extremely specific and extremely, you know, I don't know what it would say, like uh, uh, electab- electability choices. And they, and they tend in general to be happy to toss away after Iowa all of their fantasy, all of their illusions, all of, their, all of the stuff that, that happened in the debate that, uh, that, uh, that John hated. And they get really super serious. And they, that's why they have traditionally pretty much by the turn of the spring – Settled on one or two candidates who were very, very similar, and they all, then and then they go for the next guy who they who everybody predicted was going to win a year before. They don't really go crazy; they just kind of have a little, you know, crazy spring, a rum spring a, a bit, and then they come right back, back right back. So it seems right. to me that what's going to happen is that the, all those people are going to say the Trumps and the Carsons and all those guys, if they're actual Republican primary voters and not just screamers and yellers, but tr- actually they go on primary day and they vote, they're going to vote for Mario Rubio, Marco okay, Rubio. So, so this is the other thing I wanted to say about last night because if you think. That in the end, seriousness is going to matter. Trump's and Carson's answers on foreign policy and trade last night were as disqualifying in the ter- in terms of any voter who thinks about who might actually serve to be president as any I've ever heard. Carson gave this bizarre, meandering, totally incoherent answer on what to do about Syria and Trump went on this sort of rant about how he likes Putin and let Putin do – he met Putin in a green room, which he didn't, and let him handle ISIS in Syria. That's good. He's a, he'll be a friend, and I think he's a good guy, and, and it's all – and China and trade promotion authority, which doesn't apply to China. And it was – they were both horrendous. I mean I don't know how else to put it. Like they were, they were incoherent sounded sounded totally out of their depths and i know what we say is that won't offend their you know supporters but they they only they each have 24% of the vote it's not like they have 60% vote you know they, and and you know they have to grow to win 24% is not going to win 
And again, I think both of them did themselves harm in that in that respect. You see, it's funny. I was going to point out something earlier about what I thought was really interesting about last night was um, in that whole exchange about their tax plans where Rubio is defending his family tax credit and everyone's coming after him. And then it sort of segues into the stuff about defense. If you listen to those exchanges, putting yourself in the shoes of someone watching in Iowa or New Hampshire, not in Washington or New York and not in flyover or someplace else, um, Rubio and Cruz had the best answers, you know, about the importance of the family and all that, you know, stuff um, for those audiences. And Carson and Trump, quite often, they don't seem to be thinking about how they're going to be making their pitches to the actual primary voters. And I was just, I mean, I, I really, I, you know, I, I know I'm banging my spoon on my high chair about this, but, uh, and I just love in part just because of the euphony of it, but Los Hermanos Cubanos, um, it's, I think the Cuban brothers are going to be the last two guys standing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that would make sense. That would, that would certainly follow the, the pattern of Republican primary voting psychographic, right? Uh, a, a, a firebrand conservative and um, a more inside kind of moderate, uh, a, a more quote unquote electable figure, right? right. Reagan now, Bush. Now, now yeah. what about so? What about Rubio? So let's so let's go on to Rubio and say there he is. You you know offered some advice to Cruz. So the same thing to Rubio. Like you, here you are, you know you're he's an incredibly talented communicator that that much is you know sort of without question <clears throat> so how what does he do to up his game to you know to to garner support as the next two and a half months come you know to strengthen himself and to and what does he do to overcome the weaknesses that he has anybody Bob, you want to take this one first well i mean I, you know i i think I, I actually, I mean, it's hard for me to give a, a candidate advice who's growing and who seems to be doing everything right. I mean, I don't think he's doing anything wrong right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think uh, if you're, if you are, I, I think the smart thing for him to do right now is to recognize uh, that we're about two weeks, three weeks, a month away from serious shopping, and so run against Hillary Clinton. Uh, give everyone a preview of how you're going to run against Hillary Clinton. People believe that you're electable. They believe that you're young. They have all they have all the things that be, uh, that people have been terrified about Republicans for years. You're you you you're 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 Latino. You're young and you're electable. Uh, show me how you're going to run against Hillary Clinton. Um, that's what I would do. I would just I would choose her as my opponent and not Ted Cruz and not Jeb Bush and not Donald Trump. And I would run against Hillary because I think that's what the Republican primary voters are about to make their decision on when they actually sit down to do it. Not in Iowa, but uh, New Hampshire and all the way through. It's going to be... Yeah, so uh, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because there's a Democratic strategist that you sometimes may see on Fox who will remain nameless, uh, who I was talking to last night here in the green room, and he was making a very similar case where... Um, all of the craziness in the Democratic campaign for a while gave the impression that maybe Hillary wasn't going to go all the way and took the, a lot of people sort of took their eye off the ball because the Republican field was so much more exciting and interesting and all of that. And people 
Republic, the Republican grassroots isn't really focusing on the actual stakes of this race right now. And that's one of the reasons why Christie was very smart about like not getting baited by Bobby Jindal in the undercard debate and staying focused on about how he's going to fight Hillary Clinton. And I think that that's ve- actually very good advice because you know, reminding people of what a threat Hillary Clinton is to all we hold dear, you know, telling people about how Obama's already stacked the judiciary and we can't afford any more of that. Um, and demonstrating, you know, that's one of the things that's made Carly Fiorina so effective is that she's been sort of running against Hillary Clinton this entire time. And I think both for both Cruz and Rubio and for, you know, the other, I mean, Jeb tried to do it last night too tried to sound like he was running against Hillary because that sort of makes you seem presidential, right? You're no longer worried about these little Republicans snapping at your ankles. You're worried about the real opponent. Um, and I, I think that's something that a lot of these guys are going to have to start doing soon. Right. Well, um, you know what else people need to do more of? Um, uh, uh, they need to sleep. They need to sleep and they need to sleep more because that is how uh, key to health and uh, and so that's why i'm i'm proud to say that casper mattresses is a sponsor of glop this online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price mattresses industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups uh through its system so casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing, passing the savings directly to the consumer. Casper Mattress provides resilience, long-lasting support of comfort. It's one of a kind, a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. You know, mattresses can cost over well over $1,500. But Casper Mattresses cost between $500 for a twin size, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full size, $850 for a queen size, and $950 for a king size mattress. Now, Casper understands that buying a mattress online can have consumers wonder, how is this possible? Well, I mean, the secret is that there's a 100-day risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days, and you get free delivery and painless returns if you decide it's not what you want. What do you get? Obsessively engineered mattress, shockingly fair price, just the right sink, just the right bounce. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds fantastic. Two (laughs) technologies, latex and foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. And they're made in America because they better not be made in China. So here's a special offer to listeners of Glop. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash Glop and using the promo code Glop. Terms and conditions apply. And we thank Casper Mattress for sponsoring Glop Culture and gentlemen, since this is glob culture, we haven't said a word oh, no. about popular culture. Not a word. And um, I'm wondering if anybody has a word. So I will tell you right now that the best movie that I've seen this year, maybe aside from Pixar's Inside Out, is Spotlight. The new, the new film about the Boston Globe doesn't sound very exciting, but the Boston Globe's investigation of the um, child peder- the pederasty scandal in the Catholic Church in Boston Beginning oh, it's a feel-good Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a it's, it's a rom-com. It's a it's a it's a riveting, unpretentious, very uh, bare bones, very basic, unshowy piece of work uh, um, that is okay. among, among sell other it, sell it no, more. But it's it is bare bones, it's, it's basic. It is. 
it is it is it is riveting it is at some points it is sort of sit on the edge of your seat tense um and it has among other things uh some of the best portrayals of the how the the workings of the elite in america how people meet at clubs to make plans how they use law firms to quiet people down and and how newspapers uh, at one point in time when they were more powerful and wealthier and and arguably you know more more serious how they would go about when they decided to take it and do an investigation into something how it worked um, it's the best portrait of a of a newspaper I've ever seen in a movie, the most sort of accurate and clearest. So, um, and I really, I really recommend it very highly. I mean, it's, this is one of those topics that when anybody brings it up, it's just that there's just so many terrible jokes, um, that you can make that one can, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to be really super honest whenever this particular subject is raised, Mm -hmm. it's just, I turn into, even what I'm about to say is the beginning. I turn into I'm like a ten year old boy, where you it's just it just you can make a million jokes. So I'm 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 just saying this because I'm awkwardly trying to keep myself from making any of them. Right, Jonah, well, help well, me out here. Um, <laughs> well, since I haven't seen the movie and I really don't want to get baited into talking about pedophilia or <laughs> any more than I want to get baited into a panelist van um so i will change the subject and um say that my favorite two i have two favorite surprise tv shows that i really really like um uh one is 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 from the bbc it's called the last kingdom um it is about uh king alfred and a fictional character named utrecht dealing with the invade the viking invasions of england and it is exactly what Vikings, um, the TV show, should have been. It's really wonderfully written and acted. It kind of gives you – it satisfies your Game of Thrones fix a little bit. Um, and I was just really sort of surprised how much I like it. Um, and then the other show is the Amazon show, The Man in the High Castle, based upon the yeah. film. Oh, so good. And I was – We've I only seen the pilot. It's only the pilot so far, but – Right, it's, a, it's a sort of like two hour long episodes, um, and then the rest are coming in. Uh, I think November twentieth. November twentieth, yeah, yeah. And I was nervous about it, and I really, really liked it. I will say, I think that the Man in the High Castle, the pilot, suggests that the series is actually going to be better than the novel. The novel, which is which is one of the earliest works of you know, counter history. Um, and, and I, I reread it this year, Philip K. Dick's work, and it is a boring mess. That's what I thought at the age of 54. I thought it was much more interesting when I was 18, but it's full of people throwing the I Ching and, you know, and, and there actually is very little in the way of plot resolution. There's a lot of kind of brilliant and clever setup, but, um, but it kind of ends in this bizarre, unfinished way in which he basically states the theory of the book without ever actually demonstrating how, how the counter history would be, would be resolved. 
Um, and the show so, really I'm fleshes so, it out. I'm really so glad you said that. Yeah. Because I, I read it at the Golden Age of Science Fiction of 16 as well. And um, I remember not liking it and, and, and being really shocked that I didn't like it because I loved that kind of stuff. And I found it to be tedious and, and, and hard to follow and all of that. And so, but now I'm like fascinated to remember, like, I didn't remember this or I didn't remember that. And I know that they've changed some things and I want to spoil anything, but it feels so much more vibrant than what I remember the book being like. Yeah. And, you know, Philip K. Dick really was a sort of extraordinary, singular kind of writer because he wrote these, you know, very pulpy, pulpy books. But he actually wrote this, he wrote them and he anchored this world, this, this, you know, actual schizophrenic worldview you know his view of the world was that you know there was a there's a fake reality behind a real reality and and it keeps peeping out and you know there are secret messages and you starts and someone starts seeing what's actually happening and notices that the world he's living in is a sham that's all that's true but one of the reasons that he was so extraordinary or could be so extraordinary is that his portrait of the, of the of the superficial world that turns out not to be the world that is actually going on were so sociologically precise and exact and a guy in a not very good marriage or sort of like life in a lower middle class town in northern california that kind of thing like he evoked that as well as any american writer ever has and then he would start peeling it back um, and you know the man in the high castle di- didn't doesn't really have any of that, and for some for some reason I assume because it was the, like the book of the moment that he yeah. was get, needed to win the award for because he hadn't won four times earlier for the books he should have won it for that was the book that sort of made his his reputation. But I I'm really looking forward to the next nine hours or whatever it is that that, that they've made. Rob, do you have anything? Well, you've been talking about this damn book for nine hours. It seems like. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, I haven't. Uh, I haven't seen. I haven't seen the show. I hear it's good. <clears throat> I have been watching uh, vines and YouTube videos for the past couple weeks. Um, I watched the entire um, Paul Lind Halloween special, which is on <laughs> YouTube. Which I did that last year. The- simply cannot be believed. It can't. It's it from can't. 1976. Uh, I, I'm sure all this highbrow uh, science fiction BS is great. Um, if you have access to the internets, I recommend you type into the YouTube search bar, Paul Lind Halloween special 1976. It has everything you need. Um, and then I've been watching these, you know, vines are big. The kids are into the vines, you know, the six second little funny little things. Um, I would uh, I would click on the vines if you if you don't know what the vine what a vine is go go and uh, get the app and download it. It, it. These are six seconds. Most of them are terrible. All almost all of them are terrible. But some of them are really genuinely funny, and um, and they are all by young people who uh, have a sense of humor, which you don't uh, right now. That you you could convince yourself uh, that there aren't any young people with senses of humor anywhere in America. Um, certainly not in New Haven. Certainly not in Columbia. Um, <laughs> But there are, and they're all on Vine, and some of them are funny. Some of them are terrible, but some of them are funny, and they're just all normal kids. And they're, they're doing something kind of hard, which is to, 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 to tell a visual joke in six seconds. Right. Um, so so. Uh, 
but it's also really good, you know, for the nation's, you know, ADHD. It's really, really good that <laughs> you know, we're now, you know, that we can we <laughs> yeah. can now watch watch. Well, watch, I, uh, I, ten, I wish that were the case. I would, I would, I, I would love ten all those videos a minute. Is, I would love for all those kids in, in, in Missouri and uh, New Haven yeah, to sort of lose interest in what they're doing, to suddenly <laughs> to lose, the fo- lose their focus. Yeah, that would be good, actually. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Jonah, you got anything coming up you want people to come see or hear? Mm, I don't think so. Um, I'll be on special report uh, tomorrow night. That's Thursday night. I know this will be up by then, right? And... Um, and then the other ones are too far out for me to announce now, but I have a busy spring coming up. Rob, what are you nothing. doing? You got nothing? I'm well, I, I, I will I be red eye occasionally. So there right. you, they never well, know. S- speaking of red eye, uh, you know, it, 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 <laughs> makes, it, makes, it makes a television show for a fraction of the regular price and provides it direct to your new customers. But, um, I will in fact be on red eye tonight. That is, oh, well, there you go. uh, on November 11th, or I guess at 3 AM, November 12th and midnight on November 12th on the West coast. And I will also be on, on, uh, December 2nd, which is uh, ways away. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we'll be discussing very serious and important, uh, issues that, are discussed on no other program ever anywhere. Um, and of course, uh, you know, I will be, uh, I will be opening for, uh, Eddie Cantor and George Jessel at the giggles and West Nyack. Nice, nice to keep a contemporary, good contemporary reference, by the way. Uh, th- th- thank you very much <laughs> because he was the Toastmaster general, sure. uh, as, as Jonah and Rob, our Toastmasters uh, non-pareil uh, at, at many at many events and the National Review events and the like, um, and uh, Georgie Jessel, uh, a great uh, a great American general General uh, Jessel actually uh, used to wear a uniform before he before he passed. Sure. Um, so uh, on that insane and totally pointless and meaningless note, I bid you gentlemen a <laughs> yeah. Can we stop now? Now that, hard, now that we're, once we start talking about Georgie Jessel, it's really time to wrap it up. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what Sophie Tucker said. Uh, <laughs> so, oh. uh, <laughs> so everyone hang up. <laughs> See you, fellas. Bye, you guys. Bye. Way down, way down in New Haven town lives Mr. Yale, only Yale. Never cares to come around just because of its bad bow. Poor old Harvard tries it once a year, always goes back, tied up in black. For when old Yale sticks that big bulldog on, he raises an awful row. Bulldog, bulldog, bow, wow, wow. Through the lines, that is the sight we hail.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.